0: It's similar to just a planning application. You submit, it goes to advertising, and council make a decision. So you think, well, it's cheaper, it's faster, so it's a bit of a no-brainer. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty.
1: Hello, and welcome to Episode 81 of the show. Thanks for joining me. Trust you well. I'm doing okay. Just sitting in another lockdown in Melbourne. So it's been another couple of weeks of just sitting at home with the kids around and everyone getting a bit bored. But we're working our way through it and we're just about to come out the other side. So fingers crossed that we can continue being open. So, fortunately, residential construction has remained open, which has been good for my project because work has continued. Things are looking good on site. All the scaffolding has come down now, so it looks really nice on site without any of the scaffolding around, and you can see the designs of the buildings shining through. The interiors are being worked on. Some of the interiors of the back townhouses are just about done. They're starting on the landscaping. They've poured some of the driveway And the finish line is in sight, so it's been quite good, although there's been the usual issues that have popped up that require some solutions to problems. That's part of developing. So things are moving along there, which is really exciting. On my other project, the site has been cleared. Uh, It's looking really good. We've submitted our town planning package into council for endorsement, so we're just waiting for them to hopefully stamp that. We've managed to achieve our pre-sales, which is good, and we're just getting ready to start construction. So going through all the financial documentation and getting all the conditions sorted out. So everything happening there as well. So it's been a very busy couple of months for me. Now, one good part about the lockdown in Melbourne is that I had a little bit of time to wrap up my training program which has been good. And I now have some people in there testing it out and I'll be opening it up soon to other people. So if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then please email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I can send you some more information about the program. I'm sure it's going to be something that people really enjoy. Now, speaking of my project updates, be sure to check out my social channels on Insta and Facebook under the handle of Property Developer Podcast, and you can see all my latest project updates. I do video updates about how the sites are looking, so if you want to check out how they're progressing, that's where you can find them, and I also post other property development related news, so go check them out. Okay, on to today's guest, a friend of mine, John Marquez, who will be familiar to people who listen to the show. John was my very first guest on the show way back in episode two, and we also talked to him in episode 12. John's a very active developer, he's done a number of projects, a couple of four-unit sites, a couple of 10-unit sites, he's got quite a few projects happening, and we're going to talk about John's experience getting restrictive covenants lifted off property. So... This is a conversation we haven't had before on the show. It's quite interesting about how you can get a burden lifted off a potential development site. So in this conversation with John, we're going to talk about well what is a restrictive covenant and how do you know if the land you're looking at has one? Who do you need help from to remove a covenant and how do you actually go about getting them lifted? So keep an ear out in this conversation for how John ended up sitting in the Supreme Court of Victoria, wondering whether or not he may be losing his case. So this discussion between John and I is just that, a conversation. It's not legal advice about how to get a covenant removed. You need to talk to a good lawyer about getting that done if it's something that you're thinking of doing. Anyway, I really enjoyed this chat about restrictive covenants. It's a good one. I'm sure you'll get something out of it. So let's head over to John. John Marquez from Arena Equity, welcome back to the Property Developer Podcast.
0: Thanks again, Justin. Good to be back.
1: For those who've joined the podcast a bit late in the uh, piece... John was actually my very first guest on the show in episode number two. And then you came back and joined us for episode number 12. So if you want to find out a bit more about John, go back and have a listen to those two episodes. But um, you've had a pretty interesting property development career so far. You've decided to tackle a couple of interesting projects, which we might touch on a couple of them today. Uh, But you did a Small for you to project as your first project, and then you partnered up with someone and took on some bigger projects. Um, and one of them involved removing a covenant, which we're going to talk about today removing covenants. But uh, maybe just give us a quick snapshot of what you've been up to since we last spoke. You've definitely had a few more projects uh, under the belt. Oh, one of them that I forgot to mention was a uh a trip to the planning tribunal, which uh, you weren't successful at. So, yeah, you've had a pretty colourful developing career.
0: Yeah, that's correct.
1: I mean, it's it's funny, isn't it,
0: that um, when we first start developing, and for those of us that have had mentors in the past, we're sort of told this is what you should look for in relation to a site, um, has, uh, let your agents know these dimensions, this size, this and that. And then we just find that uh, the properties that we actually come across and end up buying are completely curveballs. And in tough markets, sometimes you just have to accept the fact that um, you will come across sites with problems and challenges. And we've just found that that's been the best learning for us.
1: Yeah, so I think Um, when we last spoke, you... uh... Tackling an eight-unit site, that's definitely been wrapped up or maybe it was a 10-unit site. I think you did another 10-unit site. So then you've got a, I think you're just finishing a four-unit site. You've just acquired another four-unit site. So you've uh, been pretty active. Yeah.
0: So as soon as I joined forces with uh, my other business partner, we um, we just spent at the time, we both... Uh, saw each other at an auction where the prices blew beyond anything we thought it would. And so we sort of both had the idea at the same time that um, we need to step up to the next level because there's just too many people at this um, three to four-unit site, just too much competition. So it's funny, as soon as we made that decision, um, we started finding larger sites quite easily. Uh, Things have changed now, but... um, Yeah, it was quite surprising how quickly we found them.
1: So I think your first project uh, as a partnership was this, was it a 10-unit site? Anyway, it was a site that had a single dwelling covenant. So let's talk about, we're going to focus on covenants and removal of them. So let's, you've you've got uh, two projects that you've done now. So perhaps you could talk us through that first site and then we'll move on to the other site that has had a covenant and, and how they were slightly different. Okay, Um, so it's
0: funny. The first site that we actually came across that had a covenant um, was a one-dwelling covenant. We were aware of it from the start. Um, At that stage, we weren't really well rehearsed in how the whole process was going to work in relation to removing it. Um, We did gather enough information to give us an understanding that... um, we could potentially remove it through the council process or the planning process. The vendor at the time had quite a bit of intel in in the street because he knew just about everyone on that street, which were all the beneficiaries to that covenant. And because most of the people on that street either had large blocks like the one we purchased or were living in already subdivided blocks uh, none really had an interest to challenge us because obviously the guys with the bigger blocks uh, were thinking of doing the same as us. So we probably, I think we were the first site on the street, large site, to remove a covenant. Um,
1: so the sorry process to... for that one, surprisingly. Sorry. sorry to jump in. How big was that block again? Was it 3,000 square metres? I think it was uh,
0: 2,200. mm mm-hmm. So it was quite a big block. It was in a general residential zone and it had a DDO 8 So close proximity to a group of shops there. So it was in a good position. So it was a bit sad to see it just had a little house in the middle of this massive block and no one could do anything with it or no one had done anything with it. Um. Yeah, so I'm not sure if it was a bit of naivety at the time, the fact that uh, we thought things would go smoothly, which they did. Um, And then obviously later on with other projects, we found that um, it can be quite challenging, the removal process. Um, Did you want me to talk about how we
1: went through it? Yeah, well, we might just take one step back before we get into the mechanics of how you went about it. But when you're looking at a site, how do you know that it's got a covenant and what is a restrictive covenant or a covenant?
0: Yeah, well, just, um, and it's interesting. I was reading the other day on some covenant forum about the number of developers in the past that have been called out with um, covenants uh, they're so easily to miss and i've actually heard stories developers have gone all the way through the planning process only to find out towards the end that they've probably had a one dwelling covenant and that's the fact that council don't really look into uh, the title till right at the end of the process so unless you've got a team i mean look in most cases you expect the real estate agent to make you aware of this or your solicitor when he's reviewing your contracts. But um, yeah, it's interesting to know that it's actually gotten under the radar of a lot of people. So just firstly, to, to describe um, a covenant, um, basically it's an agreement between landowners, uh, which may restrict how land is used and developed. So I think if you look at new estates today, you could. I'm not sure if they're actually covenants, but you know that uh, new estates have rules and regulations around what can be built on there, the sizes, the materials. So this is very similar. Um, So there are many covenants, but the most important one that you need to know is the one dwelling covenant. That's the one that can really stop you at your tracks. Um, So where to find it? There's really only one place to know or see, and... It feels like it's hidden away in a way, because uh, it's only a one line, and you'll find it on the title under encumbrances and caveats. There you'll see a, lot, a little a, a one sentence saying that there's a covenant. Now you may not know what the covenant is, so uh, the the best step is once you've identified that is get someone uh, in the legal your legal team or yourself to um, find further information about that covenant through titles office.
1: Yes, normally there's one line on the title that says there's a covenant or a reference to a number related to the land and then someone who has the skills to be able to go and look that up can then go and have a look at what the actual uh, details of that restriction are. Yeah that's right.
0: So I think it's it's called a restrictive covenant document which uh, you can obtain from the titles office and that then elaborates on what it is exactly mentioned. and that's something obviously that you need to know before you can move forward.
1: Yeah and some of these can be quite old because what happens when you think about cities 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago for example Melbourne or Sydney any of these big cities the outer areas were large tracts of farming land and then they slowly get carved up into uh, parcels of land to sell to homeowners. And then quite often the farmers or the developers put restrictions on the land and that's how they ended up with these single dwelling covenants. And then the cities have continued to grow around them and then suddenly having one house on a, on a big block on a 1,000 square metres or 2,000 square metres just seems ridiculous, but they've still got the, the covenant on them.
0: Yeah, and some of the reasons for the covenants seem quite, don't seem to relate to today's times anymore. So you may have one where it says no removal of soil, no quarrying, uh, must have slate roofs. So, although when we see stuff like that, we think uh, we don't think much of it, the Supreme Court takes covenant removals very seriously. So, although we may think that they're outdated, they're not relevant today, uh, the Supreme Court
1: sees it as a serious matter because it is an agreement that was made in the past. Yes, well, it's good that you touched on the su- Supreme Court. So you've had one covenant removal that went pretty smoothly It went through the planning process, the other one that you had to go through the Supreme Court. So let's talk about the two ways that you can get a covenant removed and then let's go through your experience with both those options.
0: Okay, so there's a few ways, but the most popular ways are either through the town planning process or the Supreme Court. Um, Deciding on which way to go about it, um, you would find out through digging information about the covenant. So you would usually, as soon as you buy, as soon as you have committed to a site say for a due diligence period during that time um, you would try and find as much information as you can about the covenant the beneficiaries or the people affected the number of beneficiaries where the beneficiaries live in relation to your site um, and so all this information you would either you would achieve through your land surveyor a town planner or even a legal expert in covenants. So once all that's revealed, it gives you a good understanding of which way to go. Because when most people sit down and talk to the land surveyor or their solicitor, they usually find that it's a no brainer to go through the town planning process. It's a more straightforward process. So it's similar to just a planning application. You submit, it goes to advertising and council make a decision. So you think, well, it's cheaper, it's faster. Um, so it's a bit of a no-brainer until you find out that you only need one beneficiary to object to bring the whole process to a standstill. Once that happens, council just issue a refusal and then you end up at a Supreme Court basically. So you would have to be quite confident that you're not going to get any challenges from any beneficiaries, which may seem like an insurmountable task. However, it all depends on how many beneficiaries there are. If you find that there's only, say, five or six beneficiaries, uh, you may be able to meet with them and have a discussion around whether they're thinking of um, challenging. If not, uh, you you can formulate a legal letter, that they can sign saying that they won't be taking the action, and you can submit that with your application. So that sort of covers you from the start. However, in most cases, you'll find that you'll have more beneficiaries than that.
1: Yeah, and the funny part about beneficiaries is that the land that the beneficiaries or the land that are, the land that is considered beneficiaries, it may not just be next door. Sometimes it can they can be streets away. There's it's really um there's no kind of rhyme or reason about where some of these titled uh, beneficiary blocks might be. Yeah.
0: But from the Supreme Court or even from councils, more from the Supreme Court if you end up there, um, the further away a beneficiary is, uh, the less he's going to be affected by what you're doing. So... Visually, you know, he's not going to be, uh, his views aren't going to, uh, any views that he may have or any changes that you're making won't affect him as much as it would your immediate neighbours. So this is why it's important to find out who they are and where they are. And then having that information and if you do end up at the Supreme Court, now the Supreme Court have got all this information and then they know that, They have all the intel on the people that are challenging it and then based on that, they will determine that uh, it's not really affecting anybody detrimentally depending on where they live.
1: All right. So for your first site that you did the covenant removal, you went through the town planning process and that all went fairly smoothly. Is that right? You went to advertising. Were there many beneficiaries?
0: No. No. Um, It was basically the people on the street, and it wasn't such a big street. So uh, there weren't many beneficiaries. And as I said, a bit of naivety from our behalf because we just thought, this is too easy. So um, had no challenges from anybody. Uh, We did um, meet with some of the neighbours that we got in contact with through the vendor who knew them quite well, and... So we had an understanding that we weren't going to get challenged. However, as I said, it depends on uh, we didn't actually talk to all the beneficiaries. but we, we had a fairly good understanding just based on the fact that most people on the street had large blocks or subdivided already blocks, so it wasn't really much of an issue to them. And also the fact that they didn't have an understanding of what we were proposing because at that stage, we tried not to declare or make it obvious what we were planning to do with that site. So, all went smoothly. Um,
1: Oh, I just had had a recollection. I just had a recollection. I just remembered that I think you had a clause in your sale contract with the vendor that um, related to you getting the covenant lifted. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, it was quite surprising that he accepted that. So... um, the deal was, uh, the clause in the contract was that um, subject to removal of the covenant, which we were a bit cheeky putting that in there and didn't think uh, it would be accepted, but it was. So we've tried that since on other sites and have found in most cases that uh, vendors aren't willing to accept such clauses. So it was quite surprising that... Uh, the
1: vendor at the time did. Yeah, well, we're talking about a different market uh, when you were purchasing that block. But so you went through advertising, you got no objections. And then what happened?
0: So then you get to the end of the process. um, And then the most important part, once the process finished, because up to that stage, anybody could steal, just like with planning process, anybody is still able to object. So... We were informed by our solicitor that the most important part of the whole process is to get it registered on title, the removal of the covenant or the modification. The most important thing until then, uh, you're open to objectives still coming into the picture. So it was vitally important that we got that done straight away. And I recall that once we had done that, um. We met with council for a pre-approval application. And I just remember when the planner opened up the plans that we had and freaked out when you saw the number of units we had proposed. I think originally we'd proposed 10. And as he opened unfolded the document, he basically, passed out, he was quite taken back and he said, I thought this block had a one-dwelling covenant that you removed. We said yes. And he said, oh, I didn't expect this many to be put on there. And so this is another reason why um, you have to be cautious about which council it is you're dealing with. Certain councils, just like with subdivisions, won't allow you to just submit... Uh, an application for the removal or modification of a covenant. They actually want to see um, a town planning application with it, showing what it is that you're proposing, just like with a subdivision. They want to see what it is. So, in this case, uh, this particular council uh, didn't ask for it, so that was another reason we were quite confident that we'd have a good chance of getting it through. Uh, We were informed by our solicitor that if Councils that do want to see both applications at the same time, uh, that you may be better off going straight to the Supreme
1: Court. So, in that case, you just had the single dwelling covenant lifted, so the land was basically unburdened. Absolutely, yeah.
0: So it was a complete removal. That's correct. It wasn't a modification; a complete removal. All so right. basically, now you had a block that was two thousand two hundred, I think it was two four um, ddo eight. So it uh, increased the value of the property quite significantly.
1: All right. So tick for that one, successful covenant removal. You did the project. It all went really well. And then you decided uh, you'd try it again. So tell us about the next block that had a covenant on it. Well, it wasn't
0: so much about deciding to do it again. It's just that we came across another site and then we thought, okay, we've got a we've got somewhat of an experience with covenant removals. This one happened to have it. It was a smaller site. Um, however, again, it was in a DDO8 and we thought, um, of course, when you're tackling covenant removals, you always have to factor in the worst-case scenario. so the extra time and the extra money uh, and the extra headaches and then risk-reward. Work out if it's all still uh, based on your fees, worth the effort. So, with this one, we came across it was on the main road, um, had a one dwelling covenant. There was quite enough examples and precedences on the street to make it seem like it was a straightforward no brainer to remove. So, we thought this is an easy one. We had our neighbor next door on one side that uh, had recently had theirs modified. We had a couple of other examples further down the street. We had our neighbour on our other side that was looking at removing theirs or modifying theirs also. So we thought it's all happening here. This is an easy one. However, um, before we started the process or before we committed to the site, we were also aware that there was um, a serial objector in the area that was challenging all covenants, anybody trying to remove or modify a covenant. Um, so we cautiously started the process. We've got enough information on everything and started. Now, in the case of this one, we were misinformed. There's a few things that went a little pear-shaped at the start, which meant it extended the whole process. So initially, our land surveyor didn't clearly identify all of the beneficiaries um, to the covenant. So when then council, when council advertised, they just did a blanket advertising to everybody, which uh, they've got the right to, but uh, probably shouldn't have happened. We should have informed them more clearly of all the beneficiaries
1: without having left any out. So sorry, just sorry to interrupt. What what do you mean council did a blanket? advertising
0: um, okay so I think I think there's there's rules around um, if council don't have enough information about something that they can just advertise to everybody
1: in the vicinity so that's every household or every block of land within a certain distance from the subject site Yep So you're sweep, potentially you're sweeping up a whole bunch of people that have no interest or aren't considered beneficiaries,
0: right? So we started getting objections from people that actually were beneficiaries, and there was also confusion around who was and who wasn't, just based on the information we had at the time. So uh, we had to go through the process a couple of times as far as advertising, because uh, we weren't getting much clarity. It seems like it. It, it seems like it's quite simple to just. Um, you know, get a legal team to go to title's office, uh, dig up all the information on all the beneficiaries, but it just isn't that simple. It is quite complex because you know, blocks of land get subdivided into smaller blocks then those subsequently get divided into smaller blocks and so you've got to follow the trail of when these subdivisions were done, the dates, which one precedes which one, the beneficiaries of each and it gets quite detailed. So our mistake was probably that we should have used a legal expert rather than just a land surveyor. Um, so that was part of that issue. So, um, and then the the person that um, the local uh, serial objector, he got wind of this and he approached council and started having to go at council. He went there quite a few times uh, challenging some of the stuff that wasn't done right and things like this. So he started getting wind of all this stuff and, yeah, he's just started making it difficult for us. Um, So things didn't go well from the start. Um, As I said, we received um, objections from people that weren't beneficiaries, some that we didn't know whether they were or not. So council had to then... Referred to their legal team to get a little more clarity over the whole matter, and towards the end, yeah, the whole process um, broke down basically due to the fact that initially we were informed that there weren't that many beneficiaries. I think it was a total of thirteen, and most of those were three, four blocks away in the in the dead end street in a little section of the suburb. And so that was part of the reason we decided to go through the town planning process as opposed to straight to the Supreme Court, which probably would have been, in hindsight, the best option based on knowing that um, we were going to get challenges just based on the fact that once it was revealed, there was many more, dozens more beneficiaries than what we were initially informed by this stage. We had already started the town planning process, so it was a little late. So we thought let's just see it through and see how it goes.
1: So how many beneficiaries roughly were there in the end?
0: I think there was I think there was 30 or 40 beneficiaries, okay. and they were all around us. So initially we were told that there was none, there was no beneficiaries to the covenants in the immediate vicinity. And then it was revealed that all our neighbours, front, side, back, all were beneficiaries to the covenant. So now it became a completely different matter, knowing that they had a right, they had more rights than someone that was two, three blocks away, which sounded odd from the start, but that's that was the information that um, we had at hand at the time, and we believed uh, the person that... Um, had revealed this information to us so a bit of a letdown but um, yeah it was all part of the process i guess so we got towards the end and obviously having a beneficiary object that just meant that um, council were no longer part of the process that now became a legal process and therefore it would have to then go to the supreme court
1: and so roughly how long did that take and how much did it cost
0: Okay, so this is another reason a lot of people, when they first get an understanding of the processes to removing covenants, uh, choose to go through the planning process. It's much cheaper, two to $3,000, and it takes between four and six months. However, if things don't work out the way you expect them to, you can then add another six or nine months to that because you're going to then have to go to the Supreme Court to resolve the matter. So many legal experts will say that it's always best even if you know you're going to end up at the Supreme Court to go through the town plan to, to go through the town planning process first or the planning process because it will reveal everybody it will reveal who's who and that makes the supreme courts uh, process a little easier and faster as You've already got that information. So when you have your first hearing, they're already aware of who's who and who's got and who's got more rights than who to object based on uh who's been more affected by what you're proposing.
1: All right. So you get your rejection letter from the council, then what?
0: Okay, so then it's just a matter of um finding um a covenant removal expert in our case we used the uh, eastern consulting i think it is they're well known they're probably one of the biggest and best known in melbourne robert easton so we approached him and then he started um digging up all the information he could to start the process and then so that's his job, and then you've also then you've got a legal team um, who have the barristers who represent you in court and the best or one of the biggest is auditors. So we employ their services also. So they put a case together and we went to the Supreme Court. So how long so, did
1: that take and what did that cost? What happens? Okay, so
0: we usually factor in if we know we're, we usually factor in worst case scenarios when it comes to removing covenants. So we always factor in the fact that we're going to end up at the Supreme Court, as you would when you buy any site. You always factor in the worst case scenarios, and if your numbers still look reasonably good, then you know that that's the worst that's going to happen. So we usually factor in twenty-five to thirty thousand knowing that if we end up at the Supreme Court, that's roughly what it's going to cost us. In this case, we went to the Supreme Court with our neighbour, who was in the same position as us. He was looking at um, modifying the covenant and then either developing or putting his side on the market. So what was revealed about the neighbouring properties that had the covenants modified or initially we thought removed, but what we realised was they had theirs modified to four units. So it would be a no-brainer to know that if you tried to challenge beyond four dwellings that you'd be in serious trouble with the Supreme Court. So we knew this from the onset. So we'd already done our numbers on best-case scenario Getting four units on the site, factoring 30,000 for the Supreme Court. Um, we did end up saving some because uh, we went jointly with our neighbours. So I think it ended up costing 44,000 in total. So cost us say 22 each. So there's a bit of a saving there.
1: Uh, so when so you, sorry, John, when you The Supreme you first... Court
0: process um, is made up of a few hearings. Um, The first hearing is usually about how uh, the court gives directions on how the beneficiaries will be notified or how the advertising will come about. So whether it's putting a sign on the property, uh, making sure that all beneficiaries uh, are notified, making sure that you have the correct addresses for all the beneficiaries because obviously some of these um properties uh, uh tenanted out so you actually have to know the actual addresses of all the beneficiaries how you're going to go about it um, advertising in local papers on site um yeah so that's really the crux of the first hearing and um in some cases the objectors um roll up just to hear what's going on but I don't recall whether the objectors had much to do with the first hearing. Based on that, it goes to advertising. And then based on the objections that you get, then the, then you have the next hearing, which then is based on the court hearing, um, what the objectors have to say, who they are and what they have to say and how they believe they've been affected.
1: Can I just wanted to jump in and ask a question about removal and modifying. So when you went through the town planning process originally, were you trying to remove the covenant or just modify it?
0: No, I, I believe we tried to modify it. So we already had the understanding from the start of the fact that that was all we could do, and so, uh, in relation to going through the town planning process, it's always best to let them know as much information as you can, because anything, um, anything that wasn't, in, weren't, in, they weren't informed of at the time, could um, impact later, just with the Supreme Court. So, we um, submitted for the modification of four.
1: Okay. All right. So you had your first hearing, you went to advertising. What happens then? I think we had, interestingly, um, interestingly,
0: the one of the objectors had previously been to the Supreme Court challenging another property nearby uh, on the removal of the covenant. Um, so he was known to the courts, Usually, a, an objector is, um, the court's happy to hear the objectors. And However, when it comes to someone that has already been through that process, the courts are a bit more weary of him. And in the second hearing, I think it was that the courts made him aware that he was very, that they knew that he was very knowledgeable of the whole process because he started playing the game and stalling for time. Uh, He was giving reasons that not all the beneficiaries um, were up to speed on what was going on and he was paying visits to them. So he was basically trying to get someone to represent him because if, if things led up to a further court case, it would mean that he would have to pay costs after that. Usually on... Usually, in the covenant removal process through a Supreme Court, the costs of the costs uh, for the beneficiaries being there usually comes out of, well, it's something that you have to pay. If the courts have found that that someone has already that a beneficiary has already challenged the same covenant in the same area, they make them aware that um, they're going to have to pay their own costs. That usually scares them from taking it to the next step. So we found in this case that he dragged other people in there that didn't really seem like they want to be there. There was elderly ladies there that didn't really want to do much and you can see that they just didn't want to be there. So his purpose was to make it difficult for us to to hit our hip pocket and cost us time because he knew that there was already enough precedence in the street. Um, that this was going to go through. However, he just made it that a little bit harder, caused us caused us to go to a, a, a further hearing because the judge wanted to get a better understanding of the area, and so decided to adjourn that second hearing and uh, organise a trip to the location and do a walk around just to get an understanding because. One of the properties that was used as a case reference was actually in a service road. So they viewed that one differently or the impact of that one differently to ours. We were right on the main road. This other one was set back from the main road. So they just wanted to get a clear understanding. And so that led to her wanting to go for a walk around, get a good understanding, and then we had the third hearing.
1: Okay, what happens at the third third hearing?
0: hearing. Yeah, it was interesting, the third hearing, because all this time we thought um, everything looked like it was going to plan. However, um, we noticed that the judge started paying a bit more attention to to what the beneficiaries had to say or what the beneficiary had to say. And so we were sitting there in the back thinking, this doesn't look like it's going to go our way something that looks so straightforward having that many precedences already on the street and the judge questioning all this so there was a time in the case where it felt like this could actually go either way and so we were quite puzzled by that and but in hindsight talking to our solicitor after the hearing um that's when again he made us aware that um the difficulties of covenant removal. So they're not straightforward, as I said. Um, you might think oh, this is quite simple. You buy a piece of land, it's got a covenant. Oh, yeah, apply here or apply there. gets removed. Bingo. No, they're very complex. And many solicitors or legals will advise you that unless you really need to buy the block of land, or if the block of land doesn't have any value at all whatsoever to you um, with the covenant, then you're better off looking for something else. Because the fact is that um, although most do go through successfully to Supreme Court, um, you just never know. Some cases have cost you know up to five hundred thousand for the removal. Others have lasted up to two years through the system, so you can really get bogged down. And so this is going back to the naivety of the first one we did, thinking, well, this is easy. It's all like going to the casino
1: and winning your first hand. This is too easy. <laughs> I'm going to double up. So what happened after the third hearing? Was there another hearing or you just get your decision?
0: Yeah, so there was a third and then at that hearing... Um, can't recall if it was at the end of the second hearing or is it the third hearing that uh, the court then wanted to know if any of the beneficiaries wanted to take it to the next um, to the next level, so become a defendant. And um, no one was interested in doing that. And so the the court then uh, made a decision based on all the evidence that they had. Now, a court doesn't necessarily have to have uh, beneficiaries there to for the process to be any simpler. If no beneficiaries roll up, which in a lot of cases is what happens, the court will still look at everything in its own merits. So the the fact that there's no beneficiaries there to uh, put their case forward does not mean that the court's still not going to look at the not going to look at all information with a magnifying glass and get a good understanding of it and make their own decision on whether they believe uh, it should be removed or not. So. You might think, oh, no beneficiaries have turned up. This is good. Uh sound looks like no one's interested. Well, that's not how the courts look at it. They will still, unlike other other forms, um other cases where you may say, okay, uh, they haven't they haven't rolled up, and so therefore uh there's no care factor that. There's no care factor there. So it was quite a relief. The whole process took just over six months, I think it was. So if you add, if you add together the fact that we first went through the planning process and then the Supreme Court, probably close to nine, ten months, I think the whole process.
1: Okay, so and then you, you get see, you get a written decision from the judge. Did you?
0: Yeah, written decision. And then again, uh, once you have that, um, it's registered on title and modified, in this case, modified to four. So then we knew that, um, so that was the new status of that block.
1: Um, and who handles that modification? Yeah. to the, Sorry? Who handles the modification to the covenant?
0: When you say who handles
1: it? Yeah, who actually does the? Is it your solicitor that makes an application yeah, to the titles yeah. office?
0: So yeah, uh, yeah. So the solicitor does all the documentation and submits it to the titles office.
1: Okay. So, so what are the bit lessons learned the end? Hey. So, what are the lessons learnt out of all this, John? Oh, well as I said, from,
0: from a legal perspective, they will tell you that uh, it's a serious matter and so and the Supreme Court will treat it that way. So I guess the lessons learned are, one, uh, if, when you come across a property with the covenant, yes, it's probably worth, if your numbers look good, it's probably worth digging up, and finding out as much information as you can, and then based on that information, uh, determine whether it's worth moving forward. And obviously you'd have advice from your representative, whoever it may be, or your land surveyor, your town planner, your solicitor, whoever you've engaged to find all the information through. Um, But as I said earlier, you have to factor in the worst, worst case scenario. So, yeah, you I think in most cases you just got to factor in going through the Supreme Court, but that's what's more important is the probabilities of winning rather than the probabilities of ending up at the Supreme Court.
1: Mm. Uh, Well, I think getting those reports on who the beneficiaries might be on a covenant is actually not that expensive. I think it's sort of four hundred bucks, four or five hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, can't recall, but it wasn't that much, but. It's probably the most important part of the step, that um, it's done correctly. Um, Our neighbour at the time um, had quite a bit of understanding because he was always fascinated by covenant removal. So he knew quite a bit about all that. So he was sort of part of the reason that um, it was revealed that uh, council uh, hadn't done the job correctly. And so he he was having conversations with counsel in relation to how it should have been done, or the fact that they didn't do this and they didn't do that. So you need to make sure that you have someone uh, that's going to reveal all the information, because at the Supreme Court's, you know, that um, they can easily dismiss a matter based on the fact that you were ill-informed or they weren't um, told the whole story. So, and they will challenge they will challenge your solicitor in court in relation to um, questions around all this, so you need to make sure that you're representative. As I said, you'd need it, you'd need a, an expert um, to represent you in court. Um, as far as finding the information on on the beneficiaries, again, um, you may just get your land survey at the start, and if it feels like if it feels like um, there still could be potential of going ahead with the purchase, then it may pay to then get someone like uh, Robert Easton involved who is the expert and you'll be able to dig all the information out. And then it's just a matter of assessing it all and based on beneficiaries, precedences already set in the streets, uh, you never want to be the first, as we know. Um, Based on all that, uh, you'll get a probability from your legal team, and based on that, you make the decision. But as we know, VCAT hearings, Supreme Court hearings,
1: you just never know. And
0: yeah, that's very sort of, true. That's what scares most people off.
1: That's true. Well, you've had a VCAT loss, and now you've had a Supreme Court win, so I don't know whether that makes you even or out in front. I don't know yet.
0: Well, from our perspective, the, the experience we had on the removal of both those or the modification of one, the removal one, uh, it seemed that the first one we did, um, everything worked out much easier than we ex- expected. And we probably, as I said, we are probably a bit naive on that one, but how it worked. And then having that understanding and that confidence going to the second one where we then thought, this one's just too easy. There's already three or four precedences on the streets we're not pushing it beyond what they've done, and that is modification to four. This is just a straightforward no brainer. And yet, three hearings later, and $44,000 and nine months or 10 months, we come to the conclusion that um, was it all worth it? Uh, well, that would also be based on the fact of you have an understanding of where you believe the market's going to be in 12 months' time. So, I guess it's important to get a long settlement when it comes to um, properties with covenants, and also if you can sneak in a clause to say that um, if you're not successful, that you can pull out of the deal. But again, it's I think you'd have to be pretty lucky to get that one across the line with the vendor.
1: Yeah, particularly in a hot market. Mm. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, so John- well worth looking at sites for people that um in a hot market, again, uh sometimes all that's on the market are problem sites. So it's always worth being a little inquisitive and finding out what the problem is, and you may be able to resolve it. And knowing that if you do, uh, you're just armed with more and more information each time. So um next time you come across a similar site that you know most people want to keep away from and you believe that you um, you've got the experience now to take it through, then, yeah, it's always, it's all about knowledge, isn't it?
1: Yes, well, we uh, really appreciate you coming on today and sharing that knowledge with us and your lessons learned. It's been pretty interesting hearing your experiences of getting covenants removed. I know it's some a bit of an area that people have an interest in. It scares off a lot of people. But thanks very much for sharing your experience with Covenant Removal, John. We really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, appreciate your time. And I think it's uh, good for people to just get some sort of small understanding in insights to how it works and maybe it might spur some to do it. It might scare some off, but I think in the end, it's always worth inquiring further about.
1: Well, thanks for being on the Property Developer Podcast for the third time, John. Always good to talk to you and uh, we'll catch you around.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate being on there, Justin. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.